Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Medford is a small city just outside of Boston and Massachusetts. It is known for being the home of Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. One of the biggest bank robberies in history happened in Medford, when five men, including three who were former police officers, broke into an office beside the bank and punched a hole through a four-inch thick concrete wall, then drilled through 18 inches of concrete into the vault. They ransacked over 700 safety deposit boxes and stole $10 million in cash, jewelry, gold, silver, and other valuables. Stephen Caruso lived in Medford and studied photography. He wore sweaters that hung off his angled shoulders in a look of little confidence. Nearing middle age, his dark hair was short, except for the long, greasy strands combed over from ear to ear. Stephen was into computers and was a handyman who did odd jobs working with electrical, plumbing, and woodworking. For six years, he regularly visited Bickford's restaurant two to three times a day. He'd enjoy a good meal and a short conversation with the staff, but his comments weren't always welcome. In 1995, he specifically requested to sit in Nellie's section. He didn't mind waiting for an hour if that's what it took to be near her. One day, when Nellie was too busy to wait on him, the hostess told him another waitress would be by. Stephen flew into a rage, flung his menu in the air, and stormed out. Although the staff complained to management about his behavior, Stephen was allowed to continue being a customer. And the restaurant even hired him a year later to do odd maintenance jobs around the restaurant. Sandra Burfield also lived in Medford and was from a large family with nine sisters and five brothers. Sandy worked at Bickford's restaurant for years as a waitress. She was a kind, giving person who'd befriended a homeless man and invited him to eat at the restaurant and paid for his meals with the tip money she earned. In 1997, Sandy was nearing 30. She was pretty with almond-shaped eyes, sandy brown hair, and had a smile for everyone. At the restaurant, Stephen turned his unwanted attention towards Sandy and requested to be seated in her section. At first, she didn't mind as they exchanged friendly small talk. 
Later that year, those who knew Sandy stood by her when she lost her daughter from spina bifida. Sandy was a champion for the cause and participated in fundraisers to help fight the disease. Now, she lived alone in an apartment above her landlord's. In August 1998, court records revealed that Sandy drove her car to work as usual. While she was working, Stephen took it upon himself to wash her car without asking her. Afterwards, he asked her to go to the movies with him. Sandy politely declined. Stephen was furious. She turned him down, and his behavior changed. He became hostile towards her. He still asked to sit in her section, but would stare at her in a menacing way. Sandy and her co-workers couldn't help but notice. It wasn't long before Sandy told her manager that she didn't want to wait on Stephen. Stephen retaliated by showing up at Sandy's sister's home. Pamela was out and Sandy was home alone when Stephen knocked on the door. But Sandy refused to open it. The next day, he showed up at the restaurant looking for her car. Even though it wasn't in the parking lot, he went into the restaurant and sat in Sandy's section. The restaurant manager walked over and told him that Sandy was no longer permitted to serve him and that he wasn't allowed to sit in her section. A few weeks later, a state police trooper who was a customer at the restaurant advised Stephen to leave Sandy alone. Stephen was incensed. How dare he be talked to that way? He responded by contacting the restaurant manager and threatened to file a lawsuit for discrimination. Then he demanded a meeting between him and Sandy somewhere outside the restaurant. He even called the parent company and spoke to its president of operations. He claimed his conversation with the state trooper was assault, and he wanted Sandy terminated. He suggested that she was mentally unstable and offered to pay for her to receive psychiatric treatment. The president of operations reiterated that Sandy would not be serving him and that Stephen was not allowed to sit in her section. Now you think Stephen would have moved on and chosen to eat elsewhere, but nope. He continued to go to the restaurant. He did sit in another server section, but it was in the same room. His eyes continued to follow Sandy, his face cemented in anger. Sandy was afraid of what Stephen might do. On September 18th, Sandy told her sister that she was going to get a restraining order against Stephen. Pamela mentioned this to Stephen. He couldn't control his anger and his rage. Two days later, 
the tires on Sandy's car were mysteriously slashed. Sandy replaced the tires. Nine days later, she was inside her apartment, lying on the couch, when she heard a popping noise. She ran to the window, just in time to see Stephen standing next to her car, dressed from head to toe in black and wearing a hood. She couldn't see his face, but when he walked away, she recognized the distinctive gait in his walk. Her tires had been slashed again. The next day, Sandy set up a video camera to capture Stephen if he vandalized her car again. In October, Sandy again complained to her manager, who advised Stephen that he was no longer allowed to sit in the same room as her and that he was not to stare at Sandy. The restaurant, however, had three rooms and Stephen was permitted to eat in the other two. The next morning, Sandy got behind the wheel of her car and started to drive to work, but it sputtered and stopped. A repairman discovered that battery acid had been poured into the gas tank. Sandy went home and checked her video surveillance. Just after 3.15 a.m., Stephen, dressed in black with a hood, was standing beside her car and poured something into the gas tank. Sandy was living in fear. The next day, she wrote out every detail by hand and petitioned the court for a restraining order against Stephen for stalking. Three days later, on October 8th, the court ordered Stephen to have no contact with Sandy or her vehicle and to stay 100 yards away from her. Stephen finally stopped eating at the restaurant, but staff noticed he continued to drive by several times. And despite the restraining order, on October 25th, just after 2 a.m., Sandy spotted a red car pass by her home. Court records reveal that the car looks similar to Stevens. Minutes later, a man appeared on her video camera, dressed in black with a hood, carrying something. Sandy quickly dialed 911 as she ran downstairs and peered out the window. The hooded man turned his face slightly, just enough for Sandy to recognize him. Once again, Stephen poured battery acid into her gas tank. Stephen was obsessed with Sandy. Home alone on his computer, he found out all he could about her, her ex-boyfriends, her date of birth, and social security number. The court amended the restraining order, declaring Stephen must not go in the restaurant and was not permitted within 500 yards of Sandy's apartment. But Steve had no regard for the legal process. Immediately afterwards in a parking lot, Stephen approached Sandy, 
getting within two feet of her. Three weeks later, Stephen was arrested and charged with three counts of malicious destruction of Sandy's vehicle. He was held without bail. Six weeks later, in January 1999, Stephen was released. A couple months later, he was spotted driving back and forth past the restaurant when Sandy was working. His bail was revoked and he was returned to jail until his trial. On May 13th, Stephen was convicted on two counts for the battery acid, but acquitted on the tire slashing. He remained in custody until his sentencing a couple months later, when he was sentenced to 18 months. He would serve six months, and the remaining 12 months would be suspended. He was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, stay away from Sandy and the restaurant, and pay $3,000 in restitution. Stephen was irate. Once out, he was going to make her pay. Stephen had learned from a friend how to make a bomb, using pipe and batteries with a separation device so it would explode when it was opened. He assembled the tools he would need drill bits, wiring, batteries, pipe, and gunpowder. Now he had to figure out a way to make her open it, something that wouldn't make Sandy suspicious. On his computer, he used a family tree program to search for Sandy. There he came across the name of her brother-in-law in Malden. It had been three decades since Sandy and her family had lived in Malden, but Stephen didn't know that. He put together a lethal bomb and rigged the box so it would detonate when it was opened. He made a return address label using the name and address he'd found online. On Thursday, January 20, 2000, Stephen drove to Sandy's home At 9.30 a.m., he left a package on her doorstep. Three hours later, her landlord picked up the mail and noticed the package for Sandy. A few minutes later, her and her husband heard Sandy come downstairs, pick up the package, and return to her apartment. Sandy saw her brother-in-law's name on the box, and perhaps she didn't read any further or she might have questioned the outdated address. In that brief second, she had let her guard down. Sandy opened the box. The explosion ripped through her body and flung her like a rag doll. Her landlords felt the house rock and ran upstairs. Opening the door, they saw smoke and smelled a foul odor. Then they saw Sandy laying on the floor. Police arrived and recognized the smell of gunpowder. Officers saw blood splatter on the walls, floors, and ceiling. An officer spotted Sandy's body 
at the end of the hallway and called out to her. There was no response. Sandy was dead at 32. Police were aware of the history between Stephen and Sandy and quickly questioned him. His alibi kept changing. At first, he told them he'd gone to a library that morning, then a cafe. Then later, he changed it and said he'd gone to the cafe first, then the library. The thing about lies, they're hard to keep track of, particularly when one is under duress. Police returned that evening to secure Stephen's home while they waited for a warrant. Stephen was cordial when he opened the door and answered their questions. When they asked him what he thought should happen to a person who committed such a crime, he responded, Well, you don't know all the facts. With the warrant secured, police found in Stephen's home wiring, batteries, pipe, and gunpowder similar to the type found at the crime scene. Sandy's cause of death was determined to be from massive blast injuries. After police had concluded their search at Stephen's home, his sister discovered a booklet titled High, Low, Boom, Explosives. She turned it over to police. When Stephen was taken to a holding cell, he met fellow prisoner Michael Dubis. Michael recognized his photo from the newspaper and started asking Stephen questions in the hopes he could pass on the information to law enforcement. Over 19 minutes, Michael gained his trust. Stephen told them how he'd learned to make a bomb and they found a relative's name and address online for the return label. He even confessed to messing with Sandy's vehicle. And the motive? Well, he said he was mad Sandy wouldn't go out with him. Michael then relayed what he'd learned to a state trooper. Michael did not receive any favors for his cooperation. It took three and a half years for Stephen to go to trial. In August 2003, the 44-year-old was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life. He appealed his conviction. It was denied. In a report by Sea Coast Online, Middlesex District Attorney Martha Coakley said Sandy would have had more legal protection if she'd been romantically involved with Stephen and that civil restraining orders were difficult to get and those who violate them aren't jailed often. When asked if the legal system had failed Sandy, she replied, She's on an autopsy table. I guess I'd have to say yes. After Sandy's death, her family, including her sister Cheryl, campaigned to change the law so that victims of stalking and sexual abuse who do not have a relationship with the perpetrator can get a criminal protection order, which provides more protection than just a civil order. 
In 2010, they were successful. It was named Sandy's Law. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Dr. Harold Shipman. He became a doctor to lord power and control over his patients. Caught and convicted, he became the most prolific serial killer in the history of the United Kingdom. After four years in prison, he exerted his power one last time. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fastening studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.